So when I was a teenager, I do not forget what was the most exciting week of my year. And it was the week that I would spend at summer camp uh, on Vancouver Island back in Canada where I grew up. It was a Christian camp, but it was also a sports camp. And even when I was a kid, I used to attend a children's camp that was there and then a preteen camp. But I would always be watching teen camp. Teen camp was for campers who were age 13 to 18, and then you could coach if you were 18 or above. And that camp was a very exciting, competitive sports camp. Um, Lots of people knew this like me when I was a kid, and they knew that one day if they grew up, they would be drafted onto a team and about 300 people, and they would compete Um, at a camp that each team had a history of like 60 years of competitive history. You literally felt like you were joining something exciting. Um, And there were lots of people who were dropped off by their parents, and they had no idea it was a sports camp. And while the first day that became incredibly scary, um, by the last day, I had never seen anyone who regretted it. This camp was infectious in getting people excited about sports and competition. I remember when I started at 13, I was really excited to see friends I had made from previous camps, and I was excited to uh, get to learn more about God and about Jesus Christ. But I remember particularly being excited to compete and to join one of these teams. But there was always one thing that I was particularly nervous of. There's actually one part of the competition at this camp that I was not excited about, and that was a 4.5-kilometer run in the middle of the camp. About half of the run was uphill. Another quarter of it was downhill, a very sharp downhill. And then the last part of it was across a beach. And there was a 50-50 chance you'd either be running across sand, which is really tiring, or you'd be swimming because it was in a bay and the tide was up. So you'd swim for 0.7 kilometers. And just to clarify, I was never nervous because of the difficulty. That actually all sounded fun to me. But what I was nervous about was the social pressure. Because the reality is that you gave your team points based on how well you did in the run. And my expectation on myself, my desire as a 13-year-old to help participate, to help my team win, gave me a ton of anxiety, anxiety that had actually been building up for years. But I remember what my coach actually had to tell me uh, to encourage me and to remove anxiety from me. And what they did was they clarified that if you finish the race, if you just participate and you get to the end, you will already give your team a lot of points. Your participation actually mattered even more than the place that you finished in. And so because of that, they reminded me to work hard and to try my best, but at the end of the day, you're going to finish and you're going to help. And that encouragement was like life-giving to me. To have a certain kind of burden off me gave me motivation But now it was a much freer kind of motivation. It actually made me compete way harder. I needed two things that my coach provided me. Number one, I needed to know that I could finish the race. But the second is that I needed that reminder to encourage me to still work hard 
and to still be concerned about how well I did because it made a difference. Now, many of you, if you've heard a lot of sermons before, you probably know that a metaphor like that is not surprising because the Christian race is often, the Christian life rather, is often described as a race. It's hard, it takes time, and it matters. And your participation and your effort in that race matters. But before Paul has talked about that aspect of the Christian life, he's talked about the reality that you will finish the race. And that reality has nothing to do with what you're doing, and it has everything to do with what Christ has done for you. That's what Paul has already explained in Philippians chapter 3, especially in verses 9, 10, and 11. You will get to heaven because of Christ not because of you. But what Paul transitions to in verses 12 and 16 is that nonetheless, your effort, your motivation, your discipline, and your passion to pursue growth and godliness still matters. Growth in Christ is an essential part of knowing Christ. Because if you know Christ, you understand that you always want to know and serve and please Christ more. And every Christian knows that's progressive. You've never arrived, and we always desire to grow. Paul actually explains this right out the gate in verse 12. He says, I have not obtained this. And if you're wondering what the this is, he explains right after that I am not already perfect. And then he doubles down in verse 13. I do not consider I have made it my own. Paul is telling us he is not perfect. Just because he knows Christ doesn't mean he's complete in a certain way. You could say it this way. He knows his position is secure in Christ. He's never going to not get to heaven because of Christ. His position is secure, but his condition his looking, his living in Christ-likeness, that is still a work in progress. And it is something that he is dutifully and enthusiastically working out. And the attitude he uses to capture that is this phrase, I press on. Verse 12, I press on to make it my own. And he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, the power of Christ's resurrection. I press on. And verse 13, again, I press on towards the goal. And when Paul says, I press on, he means I'm continuously pursuing a deeper relationship to and a greater obedience to Jesus Christ. And that might seem obvious to us. Of course, Christians aren't perfect, but the reality is it wasn't obvious to certain people, especially to a group of false teachers around Philippi called the Judaizers. And we've talked to them a number of weeks back. They were Christians who believed in the law, in the Old Testament law that it's still applied today. And they thought that it was so important and they thought that they were the ones who needed to tell everyone this and create a kind of new standard for Christians that those guys lived as if they were perfect already. Those guys lived as if they'd arrived, as if there was nothing more for them to do or to learn. 
And it was up to everyone else to learn from them. And Paul is clarifying, that's not how Christians should think. That's a huge issue. In fact, that is a tragic attitude to have as a Christian. And Paul explains the reason. The reason is because that is an immature way to live the Christian life. And that's a very gracious way for him to put it. It is an immature way to live the Christian life. And you'll see that if you skip down to verse 15 and 16, and he explains the conclusion of the points he's going to make. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Mature Christians are humble about their holiness. Mature Christians are humble about their holiness. They know that they always have more to learn or do. They always know that there are good future opportunities and they can't get stuck in their past spiritual achievements. They don't want to be stuck on their spiritual butt until heaven. They've got something to do. They've got somewhere to go. And ironically and intentionally, the word that Paul uses for maturity is the word perfect or to be perfected. And it's because he wants to explain something. When Christ perfects someone, when Christ does his perfect work in our lives, we recognize we're not imperfect. And it's actually something we carry with us, not as a guilt trip that we're constantly carrying with us, but as motivation to grow as we go. And this is so key to being an effective Christian. So Paul actually adds, if you think differently, God himself will need to be the person to reveal that to you. Verse 15, God himself is going to have to ignite your heart so that you can live between these two realities. On one side, I'm confident in Christ. I'm bound for heaven. But on this other reality, I am dissatisfied with my current Christ-likeness. I am dissatisfied. I want more of Christ, and I want to do more for Christ. And therefore, Paul ends in verse 16. And your Bibles translate this verse a certain way. I want to tell you the literal translation, because especially in the ESV, I don't think this is translated super well. The literal translation of verse 16 is this. Since we've attained Christ, let this thinking rule your walking and your talking more and more. This way should influence your whole way you think about life. So Paul is explaining in all of these verses, in verses 12 to 16, that I want you to follow my example by pressing on to please Christ more and to know Christ more. Press on knowing and pleasing Christ. And Paul's going to explain how to do that. And he's going to do it in two ways. And this is really going to be in verses 12, 13, and 14. Two things. The first is Paul is going to explain why we press on. He's going to remind you of the reason that you can press on. That's the first thing he's going to do. And the second thing he's going to do is explain how you can press on. Which is another way of saying he's going to give you a strategy so that you can press on. And both are going to be very Simple. So let's cover them. The first thing Paul is going to explain is a reason to press on. This is why you can press on. Verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's the reason. Paul can press on because he is already in Christ. Christ initiated relationship. 
And Paul knows that that relationship has continuous effects. Since Christ Jesus made him his own, he's motivated. And I want to restate that phrase, Christ Jesus made me his own, a couple of different ways so that you understand what is all of the joy and theology that Paul's got behind this phrase. So let me rephrase this a couple ways. Here's one way you can rephrase it. Paul pressed on because he was thankful that Christ Jesus made him his own. This is an expression of thankfulness. Paul never got over salvation. Grace was overwhelming to him. It was never something that he took cheaply. It was constantly, consistently amazing him. It's like that song, you might know it, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? It's that kind of lyric that's always in Paul's head and is constantly reshaping his life. And we know if you are in Christ, that is the same reality for us. Paul explains in Ephesians chapter three that when Christ dwells in our hearts, we are constantly comprehending the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love, which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. When Christ is in you, he overwhelms you. Remembering Christ's love, it's like a spiritual IV that you are hooked up and is constantly promoting health inside of you. That is what it is. One way he says it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So he says, pay attention to God's love and pay attention to the never-ending love of Christ. And why does he do that? Well, he wants you to be encouraged. And then the next thing he says is a conversation about not being idle, about doing things. Because the love of God motivates us to grow. Thankfulness for salvation motivates sanctification. That's Paul's point. But there's another way we can restate this sentence. Christ Jesus made me his own. Another way you can say this is, Paul pressed on because he was responsible to Christ who made him his own. He was responsible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Some of you guys who are in Alaska remember the song that we sang a lot, I am not my own. And we're not trying to force kids who don't know to serve a master who's done nothing for them. We are confident that if you are bought out of the world, you are bought for something greater than the life you are living without him. I listened this week to an actor who in the 80s played a character in a movie that became really popular. And that character, because it was popular, was marketable. Lots of people wanted that character to be its own TV show, toys, commercials, clothes, appearances on TV, all sorts of things. So business people would always come up with ideas and they would approach this actor And they'd want him to either give them the rights to this character or for him to be this character in another setting. And every time the business people approached him, the actor would ask them, is the director involved? He would ask them, did the director come up with this idea? Because he created this character. Is he involved in your business idea? 
and they'd always say no. And so the actor would always say no to them. He's like, I don't want to play the character unless the director is involved because it's his character. And in a way, we need to think the exact same way about the Christian life. I am a character in Christ's story. And I don't want to do anything unless the director is directing me in that way. We press on because we have a responsibility to play our part and to play it as excellently as we can. But one other way that you could restate this idea, and I think it also helps to make sense of both the thankfulness and the responsibility tied to that phrase, is to understand this. Paul pressed on because Christ transformed him when he made Paul his own. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is a incredibly intimidating thing to tell someone. Don't do anything for you, do everything for Christ. How could Paul be so confident to tell anyone that? Well, he explains in verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Christians live for Christ because they don't want to live another way. They've been recreated. We want to live for Christ. This isn't going against our wishes. This is reminding us of what we want to do most. My love and my life is in Christ because in his love, he gave his life for me. And that came with new life in him. Romans chapter eight, verse 29 For those who Christ foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And a simple translation of that verse just says this, if Christ saved you, he is transforming you. He began a good work and he will complete it. And he is progressively completing it. And it doesn't happen against your wishes. It is in conformity to your greatest wish And just to be clear, I am only talking to Christians right now. If this doesn't make sense to you, then you don't know how good it is to understand and to apply this phrase to yourself. Christ Jesus made me his own. Christ saved me and is changing me because I was not good by myself. I needed a greater ambition that I could make up for myself. And that's what Christ is asking to us in this text. Ask yourself, what is your greatest ambition? What would you need to complete your life? What do you want most? And Paul wants to tell you, that the only logical answer, the only answer that makes sense in the way God created the universe is I want to know Christ more. All of us want to do something with our lives. We want to become things. We want to accomplish things. 
Some of us want to be doctors. Some of us want to be Christian doctors. Some of us want to be athletes. Some of us want to be Christian athletes. Some of us want to be mothers and fathers. Some of us want to be Christian mothers and fathers. But regardless of it, what it is, what we don't want to do is Christianize our dreams. We don't want to take what we love and slap the name of Christ on it and then think we're serving him. What we want to do is submit all of our desires and dreams at Christ's feet, trusting that he is going to lead us into greater desires. Maybe they'll be what we've always wanted to be and what we've always wanted to do. And maybe it's a sharp left turn, but whatever it is, God in his transforming power is going to clarify and explain to us the greatest thing I can do with my life is live for Christ. But that involves your participation. And in order for you to understand how good it is to participate in this, you need to sit down and recognize the glory of the statement, Christ Jesus has made me his own. And whether you need help clarifying that statement to you, or whether you want to understand how you can press on even more, if you are in Christ, Paul gives you a strategy. That's the second thing. He explains that thesis in verse 12, and in verse 13 and 14, he gives you a strategy for how to accomplish it. And that strategy is in two parts. Two parts that are talking about the same reality, which is this. One thing I do, forgetting what lies ahead. That's the first part. Or rather, forgetting what lies behind. That's the first part of the strategy. And the second part is straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what's behind, straining forward to what's ahead. That's the strategy. Let's look at the first. Forgetting what lies behind. To follow Christ, Paul says, you need to stop looking back. You need to stop looking at your past. Now, just to clarify, right from the get-go, Paul's not talking about ignoring your past or erasing your past or not thinking there's anything valuable in your past. He's not talking about any of those things. What he's talking about is you not bringing the burdens of the past as you move forward. Paul is telling you, in Christ, you can be relieved from the past. In Christ, you can deal with your past. You can deal with it in a supernaturally unburdening way. That's what he's saying. It's what the author of Hebrews says later in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and we run with endurance the race that is set before us. Paul's explaining that strategy is forgetting what lies behind. And you'll know this if you remember a number of weeks ago when Paul shared his testimony in chapter 3, verses 4 to 8. Remember, Paul brought up all of these details of his self-importance. So obviously he's not forgetting the past literally because he's, he's bringing it up in detail. But what he's doing is explaining to you how to deal with your past in Christ. He says he remembers how arrogant and foolish his old self was. He collected all these details that made him feel better than other people and even deep down in his heart, better than God or good enough for God. And then he explained Christ came in. And Christ stripped those things away and reshaped his identity to be something so much greater. Christ humbled him and then lifted him up that he would see Christ's surpassing value. So what he's explaining is that forgetting what lies behind means remembering God's grace 
more than our failures. Forgetting what lies behind means remembering God's grace more than your failures. Recalling the details of the facts, but emphasizing one part of it, which is Christ did something amazing in me. And that would have been so important for Paul to press on. Because remember, Paul used to be Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of the church. Verse 6, right? With zeal, I persecuted the church. I bet there was a lot of sleepless nights for Paul. You will probably never do anything as wicked as what Paul did. He probably had nightmares of all of those days when he approved of Stephen's execution, when he ravaged the church, when he went house to house to drag Christian men and women into prison. And he remembers his attitude, his joy in receiving honor for those things from men. And that guilt could have been paralyzing because the very people he used to torment are now the people he's dedicating his life to. So how do you get past that? Paul explains, you go to the cross constantly. Only through Christ can you actually deal with your past because according to Colossians 2, Christ has forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and he nailed it to the cross. If you want to press on, you need to go to Christ alone because only in Christ you can get past your past. Only in Christ. You need to keep looking back and say, Christ dealt with that and he's still dealing with that. Some of you guys have that one thing in the back of your mind that you just can't get over. And some of you guys, that thing is obvious because it's something you just did yesterday. Some sin that you're stuck in and you're scared about yesterday because that could become today and tomorrow so easily. And I get it. It's what every Christian deals with. But what he's explaining is a reminder to not fall back to our strategies for dealing with guilt. We have bad strategies. We tell ourselves it's not a big deal. We tell ourselves maybe the Bible's got it wrong. We tell ourselves, it's not my fault, other people are the problem, my circumstances are the problem. And all of those things get our eyes off of the fact that we really did do something against the cosmic creator of the universe. But listen, you can deal with that. Because in repentance, in the admittance that I have sinned against God, that comes with the love and forgiveness of God in Christ. You don't need to ignore your sin. You need to look it square in the face and say, Jesus loves me enough to die for that and then move on. And Paul is saying this passionately because he's got to do it himself. One of the beautiful things I've realized personally about this strategy is the more you actively forget, the more you go through this process of dealing with your sin, the more you passively forget. The easier it is actually to not recall all of the details of your sin, what you've said, people you've hurt, what you've looked at, 
when you deal with your guilt in Christ, he removes all those details slowly, unburdening us so we can run forward with endurance. But that's only part of the strategy because the other part is really the force of Paul's argument, and that's this. You need to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Strain forward, to lean forward, literally to stretch, stretch. That's the verb. To stretch forward with all your stretchiness. It's kind of a weird idea to get behind, and I'm going to make it even weirder. Raise your hand if you've ever watched anime before. Okay, a number of you. Any of you guys ever seen, maybe you've seen memes or something where people are doing something emotional or they're getting in a fight and like all their muscles tense up and they go like, for like two minutes and you're just watching like, and it's like way too dramatic and like way too crazy, but it's emotional and they're trying to express that. That's the closest thing that I can picture to what Paul's going for when he says strain forward, passionate, flexing all your spiritual muscles, go forward. And he's explaining how you get that, looking at the glory of Christ. It gives you explosive forward momentum. Remember, Christ says you are being drawn to the finish line. And you recognizing that means you drive forward towards the finish line. That's what he's saying. Because the end is something beautiful. The goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of beautiful words to say heaven. We're heading to heaven. But specifically, we're heading to Christ. Many of you guys know that song by City of Light. It's called On That Day. And one of the verses says, What a blessed hope, though we're tired and worn. That blessed hope is the same idea of this upward call in Christ Jesus. But then the song describes what that means. We will spend eternity around our Savior's throne. And then the bridge clarifies this more. Hallelujah, what a day that will be. For at home with you, my joy is complete. As I run into your arms open wide, I will see my Father who is waiting for me. Don't get past that line. He says, my father who is waiting for me. That's the end of the finish line for the Christian. Regardless of all that you've done in the past, regardless of all the imperfection you are still walking into, one day Christ himself is going to see you and he's excited that you're here. He's excited. No other religion in the world can promise that a perfect deity is going to be excited to see you one day. Only the truth of the Bible reveals how a perfect deity, how the one true perfect God could be excited to see us. And it's because of everything he's already done in Christ. And that goal should make us lean into holiness, to lean into growth. Again, I want to show you why Paul is so enthusiastic, so joyful, so consumed with this idea. And the reason is because, notice his language, this is the one thing I do. I press on towards the goal. I press on toward the prize, toward the upward call. One, one singular focus, knowing Christ. Focus. I'm leaning into 
being a heavenly person now because I'm going to heaven and I want to see Christ and I want him to be pleased with me when I get there. And that means there's nothing behind me that I need to return to, nothing. I'm leaving nothing of substance behind. I only have everything to gain moving forward. It's like J.C. Ra once said, it might cost much to be a true Christian and a consistent holy person, but it pays. It pays. There's a cost, but it pays. Making Christ your only goal in life is infinitely worth what you're giving up in this world. I think that's so important to hear as a teenager because I really wish someone told me that as a teenager. I really, really wish someone told me that. Raise your hand if you've ever read The Great Gatsby before. Yeah? Some of you haven't been forced to read it yet. You probably will be forced to read it one day because America. There's a famous line in that book, and I might spoil a little bit of this for you, but in my head, I'm just helping you with a future homework assignment. The main character, Gatsby, is obsessed with recreating the past, and the line that clarifies his goal is when a friend of his tells him, you can't repeat the past. And Gatsby replies to him, of course you can. Of course you can. And that line summarizes the foolishness and the tragedy of this man's life. I think I think that way a lot sometimes. I remember when I was in college, I used to miss the glory days of high school. And then I moved on to seminary, and I missed the glory days of college. And then I came here. And it's awesome here. Because <laughs> you're like, you know what? I'll be completely honest with you. Sometimes I miss the glory days of seminary and college and high school. And fortunately, because of this text, I get to tell myself something pretty awesome, which is this. If I'm in Christ, I'm always in the glory days. Always. And if you're in Christ, so are you. That's why it's joyful to press on. Because that one ultimate glory day gives you the ability to constantly create those days, not just for you, but for everybody you are around. Everyone else in this world, there's no reason to have a silver lining, and we have one, and that silver lining creates all sorts of amazing moments. And we're gonna worship them with Christ one day. We're gonna worship over them. We're gonna rejoice over them, over all of the opportunities that are just around the corner with Christ in heaven one day. You're leaving nothing behind. Listen, every teenager I know who's trying to figure out if they wanna be a Christian or not, they're wondering if it's worth it. Because a lot of worldly things, a lot of things that people say are sin look pretty good. But I can make you a better promise that God will show you they're worth leaving behind. Every single one of them. Because his word makes that abundantly clear. And even all the good stuff you're leaving behind, all the friendships you have now, for those of you graduating or about to graduate, you're gonna remember these moments well, but God is also bringing you into more good things. And you don't need to worry about those things. You don't need to have even good nostalgia drag you down because where you are going is worth it. You only gotta tell yourself one thing, keep moving, keep working, keep trying, keep trusting, it's worth it. 
And to sum up those things, let me give you a quote from a book called How People Change. How People Change. It's a great book. That's why I'm telling you the title. And this is part of halfway through the book when they want to explain something very important. This is what the authors say. God calls you to be dissatisfied. Weird thing to say. They continue. You should be discontent, restless, and hungry because the Christian life is a state of thankful discontentment and joyful dissatisfaction. That is, I live every day so thankful for the grace that's changed my life, but I'm not satisfied. Why not? Because when I look at myself honestly, I have to admit that I'm not all that I can be in Christ. I'm thankful for the many things in my life that wouldn't be there without his grace, but I will not settle for a partial inheritance. In this sense, it is right for me to be discontent. It is right for me to want nothing less than all that is mine in Christ. He does not want us to enjoy only a small portion of the riches he has given us. He calls us to wrestle, to meditate, to watch, to examine, to fight, to run, to persevere, to confess, to resist, to submit, to follow, and to pray until we have been transformed into his likeness. Don't miss out on the treasures that you have in Christ while you're young. Don't wait. If you know Christ, don't waste your time looking back. Keep moving forward. And if you don't know Christ, come to him and ask him that he would change your heart and that he would reveal he's better than anything else. And he would provide not just a life of purpose and satisfaction, but an eternity of it, a foreverness of that. Press on in Christ towards Christ's likeness, towards a greater knowledge of him. And his promise is that now and forever you will take a greater pleasure in him.